Show number 26 of I Read Comics. You could spice it up a little bit. Are <sighs> oh, you doing something better? Okay, fine. You do it then. All right. I guess I'll I'll do it. <clears throat> uh, hi. You're listening to Lena Taylor on iReadComics.blogspot.com to get the information about comics from a woman's perspective. Keep listening. How's yeah. that? Oh, whatever, dude, it sucked. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll take something else later. My neighbors are having a party, and it's really loud, and I don't know if you can hear the music, but I can hear the music, so I'm going to pretend like I'm ignoring the music and carry on with the podcasting. And I know it's been a while, but, you know, um, I was away doing the Shatner weekend thing for the Look at His Butt podcast, and it was really fun and extremely tiring. And if you want to see the five-minute version of my entire weekend, there's a video up at YouTube that I made, which is essentially a slideshow with some music slapped on top of it. But I'm pretty proud of that because I had to teach myself to use iMovie, and then I had to make the title slides in PowerPoint, so... There. It took me three hours to do it while I was watching What Not to Wear. But I'll put up a link so you can see that. But this week we're back with regular reviews. Um, I just wanted to mention that the next show is going to be uh, finally special with Catherine from Philly in which we discuss Kingdom Come. I thought it was going to be this show, but we had some scheduling issues. But that'll be the next show. So for this show, I've got a whole list of stuff that I want to talk about. I wanted to get in the plug that I forgot to do last time, which was that I um, am, am now associated with these great guys who are called English Comics in Germany, and the URL is english-comics.de, and they review and sell English language comics in the 
European Union, only in the European Union. And they write really nice reviews of the comics, and they've also t- taken the trouble of excerpting parts of my podcast and linking to it right there on their site. So if you wanted to know more about Ghost World, for example, you could read their review, and then you could click on the link to hear the part of my podcast that talks about it. So I wanted to say that um, if you live in the European Union and you want to buy some English-language comics, go check these guys out, because they're pretty cool. I'm going to put up a, a permanent link to them in the right side of the blog, but I wanted to mention it right now. So that's um, shill number one out of the way. Um, I should get this out of the way first. Um, I, I was a guest on the Comic Makers podcast, which is um, David Arroyo's show, and, and he and his partner Charlie did that cute little intro that you just heard. And I had a really fun time talking to David, and hopefully we'll do it again soon. And he asked me about the topic du jour, which of course is Takisoma, and what's happening with her sexual harassment case. And I figured I should mention it on my show because some of you probably are wondering what I think about it, and I'll just repeat pretty much what I said on David's show, which is that at this point, it's really hard to know what the deal is because now both sides have had their say, and it's not clear whether charges are being pressed against the the alleged perpetrator, um, Charles Brownstein. And, you know, from my point of view, it sounds like it was a really horrible situation, and he can apologize till he's blue in the face, but it sounds like what he did was still pretty horrible. You know, whether he was drunk or not, I don't excuse people from their behavior just because they were really drunk because that's no excuse. And, um, I don't know that the way it's been handled has been the best way. Um, but the bigger point, regardless of what's going on in this case, is that this kind of behavior is no surprise at all. It happens in the world every single day, all the time. And, there will be retribution of some form or another against Taki Soma and probably the, the women who have been supporting her because that's the way the world works. And I think that any woman who comes forward to make um, a charge of rape or sexual harassment or molestation or whatever comes through it unscathed. There's always retribution. And it doesn't necessarily have to be overt retribution. It can be very subtle retribution, but it will still happen from the men in the world because the men are still the one who run things. So that's just my two cents on that. And, um, you know, as they say, more will be revealed and I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about this case as time goes on. So that's that. To counter that, sort of, I also wanted to mention that through the Women in Comics or When Fangirls Attack blog, I saw this incredibly funny and great and wonderful blog posting that just tickled me pink, and I'm going to reproduce at least one of the images here on my blog so you can see it, but I encourage you to click through, and some of you probably have. It's a blog by a woman named Karen, and it's called um, Like Scratches in the Sand, and she was responding to the recent publicity surrounding the new Frank Miller cover, which shows Wonder Woman's ass and her body posed in a completely um, not possible position for a woman's body to be in. So she was quoting, this was so good, there was a discussion in the DC message boards and, you know, women are speaking up and saying, you know, when you just show a woman's ass like that, it's really objectifying them, so why don't you just cut it out? And then a random fanboy responds with, well, they show Superman's chest, isn't that objectifying him? Which is like, if that's your point of view, you totally don't understand the world and how it works and what power is. Um, So she put up, as a counterpoint to this, these images that she photoshopped, 
and she calls them totally appropriate covers, and I love them, especially the Green Lantern one, probably because of my little um, <laughs> thing with Paul Pelletier and, and um, why, you know, him being an ass freak and all that. But this is just so cool. It's a picture, I, I assume she took this from like a porn site, so it's a guy lying on his stomach with his ass kind of up in the air, and she's photoshopped Green Lantern's uniform onto him, but he's clearly not wearing any pants or maybe just a little thong, and it's a great shot of his scrotum, and it's green, <laughs> and if you're going to objectify men, that's how you need to do it. Showing his chest isn't just good enough, you need to show his balls. That's what I want to see. There's another one which is supposed to be com um, cover of Action Comics, which is showing, again, a Photoshop guy dressed like Superman with a giant package just right there. It doesn't show his face, doesn't show anything, just shows his crotch. And then finally a Batman and Robin, um, which shows basically a naked butt that's been Photoshopped, so it has like a very thin overlay of costume on it, but all it is is a shot of his butt. And I say, I want to see more of that. That's the way I want my comics to look. And um, I, I just can't get enough of this stuff. I, I could look at this every single day, especially the Green Lantern one. And the reason I'm going to put the Green Lantern one up on my blog is because I want to freak out as many fanboys as humanly possible. And I think that'll pretty much do it. Look, there are his balls. It's great. Okay, so that's the happy thing. Um, let's do one review and then I'm going to take a break because I have a whole bunch of stuff to review and I have to do my regular plugs as well. But the first thing I want to talk about is, um, another one of those confluences of, uh, book and movie. And this is American Splendor. Now, my history with American Splendor actually goes back quite a long way because a friend of mine had loaned me the original American Splendor, gosh, like 10 years ago. Um, and I, I got to have it for a while and I read through it and I didn't really know who Harvey Picard was before. I knew who Robert Crumb was, but I didn't know Harvey. And I thought American Splendor was really interesting. Very much slice of life, very unpretentious, very just the lessons that you learn from life on an everyday basis and, and so realistic, so gritty, so just this is what life really is like. And I knew that they had made a movie out of it because that was a pretty big deal, but I hadn't seen it. So um, recently I bought this anthology, which is called uh, American Splendor, Ordinary Life is Pretty Complex Stuff, The Life and Times of Harvey Picard. And it's the, it says right on the front, the inspiration for the award-winning movie from HBO Films and Fine Line Features. So this was the book that came out at the same time, and it collects most of the stuff, although I'm not sure if it collects all the stuff that was in American Splendor um, and more American Splendor. And then um, David Arroyo was nice enough to send me the actual movie of American Splendor, so I finally got to see it. And I really, really liked it. Um, it's so funny. I, I was talking to another friend who had seen it, and he couldn't stand it, and he said, it's just this guy with an annoying voice who whines and complains about everything. And that's absolutely right. That's exactly what the movie is, and so is the comic. But there's a lot in there, and the things that he whines and complains about are the things that we all whine and complain about. Even if we don't do it out loud, we do it in our heads. There are some just wonderful, wonderful pieces in here, like the whole exposition about which line to get in when you're at the supermarket and how it's such an art to figure out who you're going to stand behind because... You know, if you stand behind a little old Jewish woman, you're always taking a chance. She might get through or she might be trying to convince them to give you two cents off on something or digging through her purse. And, you know, stuff like that, you just can't make it up because that's what real life is about. 
Um, and through the movie and then through some of the later American Splendor stuff, we get to look at some really tough times in his life um, that had to do with him having cancer, for one thing, but also some other physical things that happened and breakup of relationship, which happens to everybody. And we really get a, a sweet, sweet look at his co-workers who are just like everybody else's co-workers, you know. Some of them are great and some of them are crazy and some of them are assholes, but they're the people that you work with, the people who are in the world. Um, the, so this compilation, I, I think, is great. It's pretty hefty. I bought it at Comic Relief, and it costs like 17 bucks, but well, well worth it. The reproduction's just beautiful. And the art inside is great. I mean, Crumb is the most well-known artist that's in here, but all the other artists are just really, really good. Um, I like Gary Dumb's style a lot, and uh, I think... It's really interesting, and I was pleased to see that in the second compilation, um, there were at, there's at least one woman artist, probably two. Sue Cavey is one who has a very different style. Um, so it's cool. It's it's nice to see all these different portrayals that go from really really cartoony in Crumb's case to an almost um, very much a photorealistic style by um, Jerry Shamray, which is just beautiful beautiful stuff to look at. Pointillist. There's a lot of dots in here as well. Now, the movie is a totally freaky movie, and I knew that before I started watching it, and I think it would have been very weird if I hadn't known that it was a freaky movie, which is that it mixes the real actors, um, Paul Giamatti and Hope Davis, as the two main characters, along with um, the real Harvey and his wife Joyce, and the actors who play them in the movie coming out of character, plus animation, plus a lot of other weird meta stuff that goes on. But I really liked it. I thought it was cool to see the fiction alongside the reality. And, um, you know, as the story goes on, it kind of gets more into the fiction and the actual movie part, and you're not pulled out of it quite so much. But I loved seeing the real people uh, that are portrayed in the movie, so you kind of get to hold them up next to each other and see how they react. There's um there's a little featurette about kind of life after the movie came out, which I thought was cool, too. And I don't know what Harvey's been up to lately, except that he's got a new graphic novel out that I saw advertised on Amazon, which um, I'll probably pick up because I really enjoy all the things that he does. So I would say definitely watch American Splendor and pick up this book if you haven't already. Um, everybody had pointed out what an incredible performance Hope Davis does. And I wanted to talk about Joyce Brabner just a little bit because I actually knew who she was before I knew that she was married to Harvey Picard because I'd seen her art in a couple different um, compilations. And I, I think they might've been actual individual issues of Twisted Sisters way back when um, that she had done the art for. And I loved her style. It's um, really straightforward. And the story that I remember her drawing the art, and I can't remember if she wrote it or not was, um, very, it was about kids, and it was sort of fun and sparkly, but but weird at the same time because of the the subject matter. But I always liked her comics. I thought her comics were great, and I, I, to me, it's a little bit weird that she's now known as Harvey Picard's wife instead of Joyce Bradner, the comic book artist. So, I don't know where to find her stuff. I actually took some time doing some Google searching, trying to to find like anything by her except for this one graphic novel that she's done, and it's really hard to find. So I'm going to have to go digging through my old um, Twisted Sisters and Drawn and Quarterlies to find this story because I'd like to talk about it a little bit more, but I can't really remember it that well, and I, I can't remember who wrote it. So remember that. Joyce Brabner, comic artist in her own right, not just Harvey Picard's wife. 
uh, and the music. Oh my God, the music for that for the American Splendor movie is so cool. Um, in fact, I'm gonna go and get the soundtrack because I loved it so much. Um, Harvey's big jazz fan, along with Crumb, and a lot of these really, really wonderful songs are part of the soundtrack. So I'm I'm really happy to have that kind of music available. I didn't know if there would be a soundtrack, and lo and behold, there is one. So let's take a little break and have some of that incredibly wonderful Ginger Mayerson music, and I'll be back with some more reviews in just a minute. me do the comic relief commercial comic relief our sponsor yay we're so happy comic relief at 2026 shattuck avenue in berkeley please go and shop for your comics there they're a wonderful store they're open from wednesday through saturday 11 a.m to 10 p.m and sunday to tuesday 11 a.m to 8 p.m and they have everything and anything you could ever want um the website the website is still not where it should be, but that's okay. Just go to the store and tell Rory that I sent you, and they will be happy people. So this next book is uh, not something that I bought at Comic Relief. It was another library find, and I'm so happy to at least have it from the library. It's in a series that's published by uh, Paradox Press that's called The Big Book of, and I've, I own like five of them, and it, there are all these different big books of hoaxes and um, urban legends and things like that. And they're basically little short stories that are illustrated by comic book artists and collected into this really big book. And when I say big, it is really incredibly big. It's about 200 pages, and this one has 50, more than 50 different stories in it. And it's called The Big Book of Grimm. It's the original tales by the Brothers Grimm that are adapted, and then they've been assigned to different comic book artists to draw them. And it's pretty darn cool. So most people know that the Brothers Grimm stories from kind of the way they've come down to us in Disney, Disneyfied format, like Cinderella. Um, but a lot of people haven't gone back and read the original Brothers Grimm stories, which are pretty gross and pretty frightening and have a lot of gore in them and like really awful things like people's eyes being gouged out and getting eaten by wolves and bears and things and a lot of magic of course and you know the stories tend to have a moral although sometimes it's really hard to understand what the moral of the story is um the brothers Grimm had collected these folk tales um by roaming around the german countryside and basically taking oral oral histories i don't want to say histories it's not biographies but just having people tell them these stories and they collected them into these big books so, uh, they tend to, they're very, you know, European oriented and have all the characters that you would expect to have in, you know, European white people kind of stories like kings and princesses and, you know, people who live in the woods, the lumberjacks and folks like that. Um, 
And then all the little magical creatures, like Rumpelstiltskin, for example, or witches, uh, Hansel and Gretel stories in here, um, talking animals, people who get changed into animals, animals who get changed into people. Uh, the art in here is just great. Like I said, there, there are about um, more than 50 different ones, and almost all of them are done by different artists. And there are a, an incredible range of styles here from the really um, realistic type of what you might see in like um, comic book classics, like like the Iliad or something, to things that are just really off the scale weird, like the Gahan Wilson stuff. And then there's everything in between. There's a there's a story in here by Dame Darcy, which is also just off in this completely strange style. Um, and other artists that you might know, like Rick Geary, who I think always does in here. There's a Sergio Aragones story, Tom Sutton, um, uh, James Kachalka is in here. Just a whole raft of different wonderful... Colleen Duran is in here. Really, really great things. Um, and you got to wonder, you know, like, if you're a European... of European descent, like, this is my heritage? <laughs> what is this about? I don't understand this. Like, what's the point of the Rumpelstiltskin story, anyway? You know? Like, this, this little guy... This magic guy comes out of the woods and he has to help this girl because her father promised that she could spin straw into gold and uh, he agrees to help her as long as he can have her firstborn child. But in the end, you know, she tricks him. The end. What does that mean? Like, what are you supposed to get from that? I don't know. Don't trust little magical guys who come out of the woods. Um, the Cinderella story, too, is... So in, in this version of it, um, you know, she... Her the fairies change her into they, they change her clothes they don't change her into a beautiful woman because she's beautiful to start with and she goes and the prince falls in love with her and her two evil stepsisters um to make their foot fit into the shoe one of them cuts off her toes and the other one cuts off her heel pretty gross and the way that the prince figures it out is like he sees the blood dripping out of the shoe ew um Again, kind of not sure what the point of that is except that like the most whitest and the most beautifulest gets the prince I guess that seems to be the point of sort of a lot of these stories as well. Um, there are some other ones that talk about the value of, say, not lying or, uh, you know, not uh, not trying to trick people out of their, their money or their goods or something. But then there are other ones that just, uh, I don't quite know what they mean. So if you've read this book or you know some of these original Brothers Grimm stories and you know what they mean... Let me know, because I'd like to know. I mean, I understand that they all have this very strong sexual subtext. There's an awful lot of rape. There's a lot of sexual congress with animals. Um, there's strongly implied incest in many of them. Uh, there's just all kinds of weird, weird things. So I guess maybe a lot of the stories are just ways for people to talk about taboo subjects without having it be real or referencing real people. And maybe that's all it is. It's just being able to bring up subjects that normally can't be talked about in a, a fairy tale context, so that makes it safe. Anyway, some of them are really pretty fucking funny as well, and of course I can't tell you the funny stuff because it doesn't translate well. It's more in the illustration and the way the characters act, like having them be more or less modern acting within the context of, you know, a 16th century Germany setting. Anyway, this was a great book. I'm so glad I got it from the library. It was really, really fun to read. Um, just as an aside, I want to say I spent part of the day uh, bagging and boarding a bunch of books. 
putting them in short boxes because I needed to get them somewhere that they, they were safe. And um, I had forgotten that I had a bunch of issues of Hawk and Dove. Like, I remember really strongly reading this when I was younger and liking it so much. And as an adult, not quite remembering why I liked it. And now I remember why I like it. It was because Steve Ditko drew it. And the art is just that bizarro Ditko style that started in, in Spider-Man. Of course, now Hawk and Dove was uh, is DC, and this is 1968. And the Hawk and Dove in, in his story are these brothers who have these powers. One turns into a superhero called Hawk and one turns into a superhero called Dove. And the Dove, of course, is blonde and he never wants to fight. So he's a wimp and his brother keeps calling him a wimp and pretty much everything short of faggot. Um, he never quite gets around to that. Um, and the Dove tries to solve things through more or less nonviolent means. But the Ditko art is just so good. I mean, he has these incredible stylized faces you know, where the characters are in close-up and they have these, like, amazingly expressive eyes. Um, and then the costumes that they have are so cool. The Hawk's costume is white with red trim, and he's got this... I mean, it's meant to make him look like a bird, obviously. This giant collar that flares up and back. And in the action scenes, when he's fighting somebody, it just looks amazing. I mean, I haven't seen the way costumes can look so good in a really long time like this. And the action scenes all look... Ditko's style is so fluid. Everything looks like it's just in motion, and it's so smooth, and there's no hard angles to anything, you know. Here's a little panel of of Hawk, and he's kicking some guy in the face, and, of course, the arms are always spread, and as the bad guy's falling, his arms are completely extended, and his hands are just splayed out, and you can see his fingers sort of reaching for something. Ugh! It's just so good. So I dug out a bunch of Hawk and Doves, and I'm going to take some time to go through and read them before I tape them back up and stick them in the box. But yeah, Ditko. I love Steve Ditko, even though he's crazy. I love him. Let's see. What's next in the pile here? Um, I got some more comics from David Arroyo that are really, really good, and I want to talk about them because, number one, they're by a woman named Carrie, Carrie Callan. And number two, they're indie comics, and and I really, really like them. But they're published by um, Slave Labor down here in San Jose, California. And this comic is called Halo and Sprocket, The Adventures of an Angel and a Robot Who Live with a Girl. What a great premise. So that's pretty much what happens. There's a girl, and she has a robot and an angel. Her name is Katie. They live with her. We're never told why they're living with her, or why one is a robot and one is an angel, or where this is going or anything it's just there's a robot and an angel that live with her um and most of the book so i should say that the angel is is gender neutral it's the angel is not a woman or a man it's just an angel um and i love the fact that most of the stories are these metaphysical discussions about the meaning of words and the meaning of life and free will and all that and it's you know, taking place between a woman, an angel, and a robot. And it's funny, but it's also really real at the same time. And I mean, in the very first issue, I was totally hooked because Katie is trying to um, use the metaphor of a glass being half full or half empty as telling whether you're an optimist or a pessimist. And the robot's trying to argue logically by saying, well, the glass is half full because during the process of filling the glass, you stopped, you half filled it. If it was a full glass and you began pouring it out, then stopped halfway, it would be half empty. 
And he's right. I mean, he's totally right about that from a strictly logical, observational point of view. And she's getting very frustrated. And, of course, she says to the angel, is it half full or half empty? And he says, well, it's both. It couldn't, he, the angel says, it couldn't be half full without being half empty. One couldn't exist without the other. It would be foolish to ask, is this a yin or a yang? And it just goes on from there. And she says, well, if you were thirsty, would you be happy or unhappy? And the robot, of course, says, I don't get thirsty. And the angel says, neither do I. And she pretty much just throws the glass in the sink at that point. But it's such, it's so intellectual, but so, but portrayed in such realistic terms. It's not like going to philosophy class where you have to talk about, you know, semantics and, and logical equations and whether one thing is a tautology. And it's just simple um, things that you think about expressed in very realistic terms. And, and I really, really like that. I love it. The art is really cool. It's kind of chunky and cartoony, um, but but neat. You can really, you know, you can see what's going on. The robot looks a little like Bender from Futurama, but he doesn't have an attitude problem and he doesn't drink. Um, and the angel has some angel powers, which are cool, but we're not sure why Halo, Halo is the angel's name, why Halo is here. Um, so I'm really looking forward to, to where this series goes. I really like it. Um, and as a little treat at the end, you get to see the three characters, Katie, um, Halo and the robot, uh, drawn by other artists, which is kind of cool just to see a little different take. And the other thing I really like about Katie too, is that, you know, she's a female character. She's got kind of close cropped blonde hair and she's not always shown in a bikini or anything like that. She just looks like a person, a normal person. Wow, what a concept. It's so cool. I'm sorry, she doesn't have blonde hair. She has brown hair. You know, inside, the way she's drawn, her hair is uh, clear. <laughs> you know, when people are drawn blonde, it's usually their hair isn't shaded, and her hair is not shaded. But I'm looking on the cover, and in fact, she has brown hair. So I retract my statement. She has brown hair, not blonde hair. Um, in, in the third issue, there's a hilarious... Um, exchange with a telemarketer between the robot and Halo um, and, and an obnoxious guy on the telephone. So I like Halo and Sprocket. I think it's really, really good. I'm, I'm so happy that it, it's a woman getting to do a nice little indie mag that's uh, so much smarter than you would expect it to be. So I like it and I want to recommend it to everybody. Let's see. What's next on our list? Um, another book that I really like, this is a, a show full of things that I really liked, um, with one small exception, because I just felt like I got lucky and read a whole bunch of really cool stuff. And that was the book, uh, trade paperback called Secret Identity, um, which came out a while ago. The issues were published in 2004, and I think the trade came out um, last year sometime. Another library score. And I was just flipping through the graphic novels, and I thought, oh, this looks kind of good, and it looks like it's it's a thing unto itself, so I'm going to pick it up. Written by um, Kurt Busick and illustrated by Stuart Immonen. And, oh, my God, it's so good. And for me, this is like the perfect graphic novel for me. Because, number one, it's only four issues. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it has a resolution. It's about a character that I'm familiar with, but it does not require that you know everything about this character. And you don't have to know any of that identity crisis crapola. You just have to know pretty much who the character is. In this case, Superman. Know where he came from. Know what some of his powers are. And the fact that he was a comic book character. And it has beautiful, beautiful art. I mean, art is so good. It's realistic um, 
sort of in the way that Alex Ross's art is realistic, but not in that mythic, epic style. It's it's much more um, photorealistic, and there are some incredible two-page spreads in there. I think um, Stuart Amonin does amazing landscapes and cityscapes, just so, so good. And I really like the way he draws Superman. Um, there's something really sexy about the way he draws Superman. And I've been looking at those pictures trying to figure out what I think is so sexy about it. And, um, I mean, he's built like normal Superman is, but there's something about, like, the way he's drawn like I don't know it's like his thighs there's something about his thighs that just look really appealing um and one of the things about this book that I thought was interesting is that Superman floats a lot when he's thinking he's not flying he's just floating and you know I haven't read Superman in a long time and I know that originally Superman couldn't fly right he had to jump um so I'm not sure what the floating power is whether he can just defy gravity or something you just have to take it. And that was also the thing I liked about this book is that it starts off in some other universe. It's an alternate universe with a guy named Clark Kent who's tired of being teased about it because he doesn't have powers. And then one day he has powers and you just have to go with it. There's no explanation for it. It's sort of explained a little bit toward the end, but not really. So you just have to take it on faith that he's got these powers and stuff is going to happen because he's got powers. And I love that. I love the fact that there aren't pages and pages of exposition that try to explain it. He gets his powers, he learns how to use them, and the story goes from there. It's just wonderful. Also wonderful is his Lois Lane, who isn't Lois Lane. Um, she's an Indian woman named Lois. And gosh, I don't know if I've seen lots of Indian women in comics, but it sure is nice to see somebody else who's not white. And they have a sweet little courtship. It's very good. Um, not to give too much away, but you know they do end up together. And I, I liked the subplot about uh, the government trying to find him and figure out what he is and then eventually being forced to work with him. That was cool, too. And then the, the resolution is really nice. Time passes and things happen in ways you might not expect them to, but it has pretty much a happy ending. Um, the art at the end is interesting because it changes from the style we're very accustomed to to suddenly being this very cartoony, um, not quite manga style, but... but to make a point again it's a meta comment about what's going on in the story and I thought that was cool too one of the other things that I absolutely loved about this is that towards the end there are two female characters who are super and they're flying and they have the best in my view female superman takeoff costumes that I've ever seen they are just so good they're supermanish they're classy they're slightly feminine looking without making them look like whores. Oh, they're just so good. And they have little gloves. I love the gloves. And they have capes. They look great. Ah, I'm, I just, I looked at those and I thought, wow, this is the best female super whatever costume. Better than any Supergirl costume I have ever seen. And I especially count that towards these most recent incarnations of her. Where she does look like a cheerleader whore. You know, with the skirt right up to her cooter. And, um, you know, her tits sort of overpowering everything else. So, oh, huge kudos for those costumes. I love it. So, Secret Identity, definitely one of my, my more favorite things. And I, I gotta say, that kind of comic is what I'm really gravitating towards these days. When it comes to the major uh, characters in DC or Marvel is the the story around the fringes or 
the, the comment, the meta comment, or the story about a story. Uh, it's why I, I, I liked Marvels, and it's why I really liked Kingdom Come, because that's what those stories were about. They're about the characters and about the comics. I really enjoy that much more than the characters that have been, you know, put through the ringer so many times, and you need to know everything about them to figure out what's happening. So I, I'm just kind of learning that that's really where my preference is. Um, sort of on that topic is... This other book that was so kindly given to me by Drew Hennessy, um, Drew Hennessy being a friend of Paul Pelletier, and he sent me a bunch of books that he'd worked on, and um, he sent me this one, and it's called Madrox, or Madrox, or maybe I'm not pronouncing it right, and uh, Peter David wrote this, and Drew Hennessy did the inking, and I really liked the inking. Um, I really liked the art quite a bit on this, and uh, Jamie Madrox is a multiple man, right? So he is... Uh, from a superhero outfit, right? Uh, X-Factor was the comic that he was in before this, so this is his little spinoff, and this is uh, issues one through five, and I don't know if this went through any more issues. Um, based on this, I mean, I, I wasn't too thrilled about getting more. The, the characters were kind of interesting. Um, the, like I said, the art is really beautiful. It's this very uh, shiny, very color the color is beautiful, beautiful color. You know, the, like I said, not, I'm not just saying this because Drew sent me the book, but the inking is really, really good. Um, it, it's cartoony without being, uh, you know, stupid. Um, it doesn't, the characters are all really well drawn, like in proportion, you can tell them apart. Uh, and the coloring, oh, there's some scenes that take place in a, a building that's on fire, and it, it just really looks great. Everything has got this amazing orange wash over it, and they've switched to like a green shading on the um, boxes, the dialogue boxes, which looks great in contrast. Um, so the only complaints I have about it is that the plot was just way too complicated. You know, if it's going to be, if you're going to do like a film noir thing, and I don't know whether to call this a send-up or an homage or, or what, you got to make the plot a little more understandable. It took me like three reads through to figure out what the hell was going on, and maybe if I'd read X Factor I would have known, but I don't know about that. So it just was like very frustrating to not be able to figure out what was going on and who was doing what, and double-crossing and triple-crossing and characters that you didn't expect to do one thing suddenly do another, and you know, the beautiful woman, of course is the one who's responsible for the whole thing, because that's the way it is in noir. Um, so I, I just wasn't totally thrilled about the plot, and, and I felt like the, the film noirish aspect of it was a bit heavy-handed. Um, it just felt felt like the characters were all playing at film noir, and they are. I mean, they actually say that. They're constantly joking about, oh, I have a private eye agency. Isn't this just like a film noir? And the word noir keeps coming up again and again and again, and, you know... Uh, it's, it gets explained at one point because some skinhead says, what the heck's noir? And, of course, one of the other characters has to say, he's referring to film noir, a French term literally meaning dark film, pertaining to 1950s crime movies noted for their cynical and moral characters in a sleazy setting pervaded with a sense of hopelessness. You know, thank you, Data Dump. And, of course, I have to say that's wrong. It wasn't films of the 50s. It was actually before that when noir really got started in the 40s. So, Peter David, you should check that. Uh, so anyway, it just felt like that whole noir thing was overlaid on top of some other story, and I think I would have liked it better if it hadn't been trying so hard to, to be a parody or a send-up or a whatever it was. Um, one other little complaint here is that one of these characters, the girl, let's see what her name is, 
she has a, a power too in that she gets to turn into a, a, a beast and she's supposed to be Scottish and she's supposed to be 16 or something. She walks into a bar and the bartender wants to throw her out because she's too young. Okay, she looks like she's 25 at least. At least, if not closer to 30 in some of these. So once again, I say, if you're going to have a character be that young, could you please draw them that young? This is like when I was complaining about Ultimate Spider-Man and Gwen Stacy looking like, you know, a 48-year-old Denny's waitress when she's supposed to be 15. If you're going to do it, do it right, okay? <laughs> it just bugs me. So, um, beautiful art, and, and I'm just not so crazy on the story. I see that this is part of the Marvel Knights line. I have no idea what that means. But uh, anyway, that was that. Let me take another quick break, and then i got a couple more things to say to wrap this up, and then a little fun song at the end. a bit of preview stuff and some show things. Um, once again, I offer my heartfelt apologies to everybody who tried to listen to the interview with Carol Tyler. I feel so bad about that. So I'm going to do two things. One is I'm going to transcribe that interview because there was a lot of really, really good stuff in that and I owe it to her. And number two is I'm going to interview her again properly, like on Skype where we can actually talk to each other and be comfortable and all that because she is just a great artist. Um, if you want to read another view of Late Bloomer, there's a new review of it over at the Lincoln Heights Literary Society, also one of our sponsors, where I do occasionally still write things. But always good reviews happening over there. I wanted to say that uh, I am very excited about the Superman movie and the X-Men 3 movie. They've started to run commercials for that uh, on TV now, and they both look like they're going to be pretty fucking interesting. So I'm very, very happy that they're coming out. Something good to watch. Um... I've been watching in the morning a little bit when I have time, uh, um, The Amazing Spider-Man and His Super Friends, which is on, like, the Family Channel or something. What a weird show that is, but I think I need to keep writing it, reading it. I had forgotten that Iceman was in it, <laughs> he gets to do some pretty wacky stuff. Um, and still a huge fan of everything that's on the Cartoon Network, including, uh, Foster's my absolute favorite show of all time. You know, they have, um, Foster's Toys at Burger King now, so I went there one day, and I scored a blue on my first day, and blue is now sitting on my desk next to my computer monitor, and he makes me very happy every time I look at him. In the complaint department, I, I gotta say, um, I, I found, I always read the blog, um, When Fangirls Attack, aka Women in Comics, because they have so many links to good things, and I found a link via Ragnell's blog to um, this commentary by Eric Larson. Of course, you know Eric Larson writes this column all the time. And this was his commentary for Friday, May 5th, and you know, gosh, I love Eric Larson, and mostly he's a really smart guy, but this column is just full of shit. And 
he's basically saying that artists shouldn't censor themselves, i.e. they shouldn't be drawing, they shouldn't be forced not to draw women with giant inflatable breasts. Now, I don't know who's trying to force the artists not to draw women with giant inflatable breasts, but apparently it's a big problem because it's being viewed as censorship. And then he says this. I, I mean, I honestly can't believe that he put this in his column because he should know better. If every comic booked woman looked like Phantom Lady, I think there would be a serious cause to complain. But we all know that that is not the case. Really? Wow. Come on, Eric. Go look at the rack. Go look at all the Marvel and DC comics that are out there and all the fucking image comics and stuff from Vertigo. And you tell me that 90% of them don't look like that with these tiny, stupid wasp waists and giant inflatable breasts and asses that are in the viewer's face every single time. You're wrong. Just wrong. Sorry, I just had to say it. Like I said, love you, Eric, but you're just pretty fucking wrong about that one. Um... (laughs) Let's see how how many complaints I get about that. I really don't care. Okay, maybe it's time to wrap this up. So uh, I'm going to play a fun little song here at the end. Next show is going to be our our big Kingdom Come extravaganza. And um, I've also got just piles and piles of stuff to read in the meantime. So until we meet again.